What is going on? Straight Talk Faithful, your host, your boy, George Mackay, back in studio today, pre-recorded, and I got a good one. All the way from Richmond, Maryland, please welcome Mad Max Morrison. How are you, sir? Hey, what's going on, George? Uh, you know what? We're about to get into some conversations, talk a lot about you today, which I'm sure is probably one of your favorite subjects. <laughs> you picked a good day for it. <laughs> there you go. We're going to talk about you and your career and uh, and just wrestling. And we're going to leave all the other stuff that's going on in the world to the back burner. We may touch on a couple things about how life is without wrestling right now and how anxious you are to probably step back into the ring, as I am anxious to get back to any independent show that I can get my hands on where I'm from in Canada. So first things first, let's talk about you. Let's talk about your love for the business, your love for the sport, why you became a pro wrestler. This is kind of one of my first standard questions. I call it the defining moment. It's when you fell in love with this business that we're going to be talking about today. So for me, I've been watching, um, I've been watching pro wrestling, I guess, since probably like my early teens. What was like, I guess for me, when I was a young kid, I, I used to do the Boy Scouts and I went to a group leader's house and their kids, it would be on before we would have meetings. And I was very intrigued. So like some of the first wrestlers I ever saw were the Road Warriors and uh, just some of those guys. And I saw the toys. I was like, this is kind of neat because I've always been a comic book kid growing up. So for me, it, it, it was kind of like hand in hand. So as I got older, I started kind of veering away from the comics Still love them, but I got into pro wrestling, and then I guess uh, I think it was like SummerSlam '96 was the first one that my family ever ordered. It was uh, Vader versus Shawn Michaels, Boiler Room Brawl, all that stuff, and I just fell even more madly in love because I was like, "Man, this is so cool!" So for so ever since then, it's like I uh, started falling down the rabbit hole at that point because then me and my friends we'd be playing in the yard, doing moves on each other, and God forbid. Then one day I got on a, uh, it, 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 it's really funny how far wrestling goes with people because in, it was in middle school when the NWO and DX and all that stuff was going on. And me and my friends, we were hype on that. And then once I got into high school, I met a kid on my bus. He goes, Hey, if you ever heard of, uh, you ever heard of independent wrestling, you ever heard of, uh, FMW. And my ears perked up because that's when I learned about guys like Christopher Daniels and Hayabusa. And I was an ECW guy already. I remember my first pay-per-view I'd seen from them that I just completely was enamored was uh, Heat Wave 97, I think it was. And I fell in love instantly because I, I loved all the blood and guts, the violence. And it was just, it was more my speed. And then... um I went, I was started watching like the FMWs. I started learning about independent wrestling. I started watching the stuff out in California, like the XPW and things of that. And it just fell further and further and further down the rabbit hole. Well, as far as me, I, uh, I spent a number of years, uh, in the, in the music business. I spent probably about 15 years as an active performer. Uh, and I guess it was until I, Got my, I turned 30, I got my college degree, and then three months later, I met a guy at a flea market of all places, and he goes, hey, I run a wrestling school, how would you ever like to become a pro wrestler? <laughs> at a flea market? That's insane. Oh, it was funny, it was like at a flea market, yeah, of all places, but the wild part was the invitation I had even to the flea market in the first place was a guy I used to work with at a, uh, 
I used to work in an uh, adult toy store, and um, the guy was my boss. Well, his dad apparently sold uh, wrestling memorabilia, and I met him, and he introduced me to some guys, and he was like, well, dude, if this is something you've like always wanted to do, come on out and try it out. So, of course, you know, that's like, I, I, I couldn't say no. So I went out and I tried a couple days and took all my bumps and started like, that's when I knew, oh my God, this, it, it wasn't anything. Cause I was already beginning to get disenfranchised with the music business and I was just so over it and very tired with a lot of things with it. But then once I started getting in there and finding that there was camaraderie within wrestling, my training camp and all this other stuff, I was like, man, I can only imagine what this could be like a few years from now. So I was like, dude, I am all in. And that's when I went off to the races, man. <laughs> that's crazy. And if, if I've done my research correct, but we all know how the internet doesn't say everything a hundred percent. I believe your trainer was Damian Wayne. Am I right about that? Yeah, he was, um, he was one of my, he was one of my trainers. I initially started at a, pl- at a school in, um, Virginia beach, Virginia. That's where I'm originally from. Um, I started at Southside Pro Wrestling under Mark Anthony and Marty Reed. Um, one of my other trainers that helped me out is uh, J.J. Blake from Booker T. School over at uh, Reality Wrestling in Houston, Texas. He had helped me out quite a bit. Well, there was a thing probably about in my first year where the school got sold and then we got picked up by a gym in uh, Yorktown, Virginia, and when Marty Reed couldn't do it anymore, Damian Wayne picked it up. And Damian's got one of the best pedigrees out here in the Mid-Atlantic. Damian is a legend amongst our area. It's him among like guys like Preston Quinn, the Pain Train, Dirty Money, Sean Denny, the Geordie Bulldog. You got Platinum Icon Phil Brown, and then there's the Mid-Atlantic badass, Damian Wayne. He's a two-time continental uh nwa champion he's a former nwa champion he's been to all the big leagues he's done it all traveled the world he was when i when he had got his hands on me he was the aiwf heavyweight champion and he had been to puerto rico and a bunch of other places and held that belt for like a year and put that thing on the map so when he took over i got excited and um i knew i was in really good hands because that well it seems to be the case because, like I said, I've watched a few of your matches, and one that I was actually intrigued by was a match that happened, I believe, just a couple months ago in February. It was Manchild versus you in a playpen match. Am I correct about that? That is correct. So that one, I mean, talk to me about a playpen match because down here I've never seen something like that. And now, from what I saw of the footage, it's a steel cage. But inside, there's like a little box, like a toy chest. And inside the toy chest seems to be all kinds of insanity that you can use to hurt one another. So to be able to talk about a playpen match, I have to, I have to, like, I have to cl- like give you the whole backstory on how that even came to be. Okay, let's do that. So Eclipse Wrestling out in Altoona, Pennsylvania, they, I'm right, right now I'm their legacy champion. It's like your mid-card champion. And I've been there about a year and I've been up the, going up the ranks. I've been taking people out. I've been doing all these things. I have a manager. Well, there's this group down there called the freak show with this punk named freaky Doyle. Who's running the sideshow of carnival freaks. And one of them just happens to be this behemoth named Manchild. He's a monster and, but he's, 
he's he's in a monster's body, but he's got the brain and aptitude of a young child. But he is strong and he is vicious and he is not somebody I took lightly at all. So they saw something in me and decided to start poking the hornet's nest and they went ahead and they went out of their way and they attacked and abducted my manager. My manager at Eclipse is Otis P. Hellenbach. They took him out and I had to drive all the way to Kentucky from Virginia on a Tuesday night after I got off work. I got a call from a hospital. I had to go get, the, I had to go out there and see him. And then I was just angry. So they just, they spent about two months just poking and poking and poking until we had a match and it was my title for my manager. I had, I beat Manchild fair and square middle of the ring. I got Otis back and they took my championship. They stole it from me. It's like, I didn't know what to do at that point, but you know what? About a month later, I gave them a taste of their own medicine because they went and tried to have a match with Jordan Evans. And out of the uh, crowd was I in a mask and I beat the ever loving crap out of man child. And that's when we set up the playpen match. Well, the playpen is not your average cage match. Um, it, it, it's kind of a vicious thing of their own design where it's a cage match, but there's a box of toys. So you have this box of toys and it could be anything. There was all kinds of sorts of things in there. There was baseball bats. There was boxes of Legos. There was a pinata full of Legos. There was my little ponies. There was all kinds of Ninja Turtles because you got to think man child doesn't think like a man. That's a young kid. That was his playpen. So he filled it up with what he could, and then we filled it up with whatever the fans brought. And the fans <laughs> brought all. <laughs> do you remember? Do you remember those little like platform toys that had like the little iron swivel where you could take the beads and it would yes, just yes, intersect yes, yeah, that, yeah, that, lo- yeah, yeah. that that looked like a roller coaster almost. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, he took that and raked it on my face. <laughs> <laughs> He raked my face with one of those. I had a bicycle helmet with Legos attached to it and headbutted the crap out of him. <laughs> it was the wildest thing. That was probably one of the wildest matches I've ever done in my life, man. But playpen, playpen was wild. That was a fun time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It looked it looked intriguing. And I was sitting there and I was watching the footage and I'm like, I, I love it. But at the same time, I'm just so hurt by what they're doing with all these wonderful toys. The Legos, the Ninja Turtles. I have a collection of Ninja Turtles, and I can't look at them the same now after watching that match. I can't look at my kid has Mega Blocks and Legos, and yet just before we sat down, she's like, "Daddy, you want to play with me?" I'm like, "Well, what are we gonna play?" She's like, "Let's build, let's build a tower." I'm like, "No, no, Daddy just watched something yesterday, and I can't. I got Legos like on the brain in a dark, dark place." <laughs> so, <laughs> you know what? I think I think those kind of matches are fresh and different because they add a different spin and a layer and. In this day and age, when indie wrestling is so abroad and it's so out there, to have these types of flavor-filled matches where you can actually set up these storylines, like you gave me a backstory of almost two months, you said. To set it up like that and to have it culminate like that, that's hard to do in indie wrestling. But you guys did it. You made it work. And after hearing the backstory and then now remembering the playpen match, it all makes perfect sense. It was. It's a fantastic story. Well, surprisingly enough, we were, we, that, that story lasted about a good five months and it came out of 
nothing. We actually had to call an audible and that's when things got funny and we got creative and it, when you in, in independent wrestling, it's hard to really be able to tell these kind of long stem stories because you got to make sure that your fan base is like in tune. You got to make sure that they're there and they're consistent and they're tuning in because when you're talking about a live show, as opposed to, um, TV wrestling, yeah, TV, you could tune in every week, catch up on what we're doing when it's independent. Uh, it's hard because it's hit or miss because a lot of times you might not necessarily have the same consistent crowd or the fan base. So when they're coming in, they're not always, um, not everybody's up to speed. But luckily over to a place like Eclipse, this is where we thrive. And this is why we really cater to a lot of storytelling and whatnot. It's because we have, a, we wrestle in one building and because Altoona is rich with wrestling history and it was forever before they had any more wrestling to really come through before uh, Phoenix Pro Wrestling, before it became Eclipse. And Eclipse, that's what we do is we give these people something to look forward to every single month. Every single month we're in there and we're telling our stories. We're progressing all our all our wrestlers and we're progressing everything going on and they're biting in and they're sinking their teeth into everything that's going on. And that it makes it great for them because they have something to look forward to. It gives us something great to be able to get creative and to be able to give them just a product to follow. And it's incredible. The messages we get to when they're so involved and just so they suspend their disbelief and they're, following along and i get messages oh max that freak show you, those da- those dastardly bastards you know i know you can beat them and they got to get you got to get otis back and this and that and man that the mat the fan base they love what we're doing they're passionate they they thrive for this kind of stuff so we try to give them like the best possible thing and it's it's it i think for independent wrestling to be able to tell stories like that because you have such a passionate fan base. It makes it great for just wrestling in general. It does. It does. And it sounds like the fan base you have there is much like the fan base we have down here. There's so many great promotions that we have out here. Uh, A couple I'm affiliated with Crossbody pro wrestling out in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. You got destiny wrestling out in Mississauga battle arts pro in Mississauga, Greek town and downtown Toronto. And these guys all do the same thing. They thrive and they build and their fan bases are very loyal to the product. And it's refreshing when you can see that across the board and it lets you know that what you're doing is right. And it's got to hurt right now with everything going on in the world that you can't get in that ring and you can't tear it up. I mean, we're not going to talk so much about COVID, but I can tell that you miss it just by watching you right now. I mean, people are when, when this drops in June, we're only going to hear the audio. They're not going to really get to see the video. But the fact is, I can tell by your face, you miss it. You miss the crowd. You miss the fans. And that brings me to my question about um, WrestleMania. I don't know if you watched it or not. The empty arena that they did to try to hold things together and give people something else to think about. Do you think it's harder to wrestle in front of, I mean, you probably wrestle in front of crowds of five people and 150 to 200 people, maybe even more. And then you probably wrestle in front of no crowds at all. Do you think there's a different, I mean, there's obviously a different adrenaline when the crowd's not there. But when the crowd is there, is that what you miss the most about wrestling right now? Is the crowd reactions, getting that hype, that extra little boost of adrenaline when you need it? I know for me, 
when it comes to wrestling, I'm selfish and I'll be the first to admit it. I'm very selfish because this is my outlet. This is, I have, I, I'm one of those people that I have I have a lot of things I do, man. I have a lot of things, but this is the one that I love the most, just to be able to go out and entertain. It's in my blood. So I guess to answer your question, yeah, it's hard to wrestle in front of um, a smaller crowd or no crowd. But at the same time, it's all a matter of perspective how you look at it because you got to think about what these companies are doing right now because it it's almost like – I think the closest one right now would be NWA kind of picked up on it before the bigger leagues were like forced to have to do the um, no fans matches because you're in such an intimate setting. It takes away the adrenaline in a sense to where you have to refocus it to a different kind of performance, like where you're going in and you're working off the crowd and you're listening and you're feeling, and you're trying to pop the crowd and do all that. Um, in a sense, I'm going to say this too. I did watch WrestleMania and some of the things I really enjoyed about watching like the empty arena matches, like the triple threat ladder match, for example, I could hear the narrative that these guys were building between each other in the middle of the match, the smack they were talking to each other as they were going. The thing I really enjoy about these empty arena matches is it's forcing, it's forcing the workers to work. They're working their characters. They're working their stories. They're actually forced to have to develop these stories. Um, a lot more than they do when you have a full crowd and you're work and you're working on instinct. No, you're actually having to focus and build your narrative. Cause otherwise, cause a lot of times we're feeding off the crowd. If any good wrestler can, you know, work and feed off the crowd, listen to the crowd. That's how we dictate what we do. If you don't have that, some people get a little funky on it, but the beauty of it is what these guys are doing now is it's causing them to almost channel theater a lot more because now they're talking to each other, they're expressing to each other because they're not so much um, they're not so much performing to the crowd in the arena, but they're performing to the television audience. So it's they're having to do theater which is really neat to me. I think that's pretty incredible. I got all the respect in the world for these cats that are doing it right now. What did you think about the cinematic matches, like the Boneyard match, the Firefight Funhouse match? Did you, <clears throat> do you think as, as things progress more and the world, when the world gets back to normal, because it will get back to whatever the new normal might mean, do you think that cinematic matches will be more of the norm in the future, even once we get past all this? I think it will. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the Boneyard match, and I really enjoyed the Funhouse. But at the same time, I really enjoyed all the um, deletion matches that Matt Hardy was doing, like, years before this. Yes, yes. Because, I yes. mean, if it, I, I believe it's fair to say that he was the granddaddy of doing cinematic matches. But at the same time, you also got to think back to, what was it? I think it was WrestleMania... 
when Roddy Piper and Goldust were doing the back backyard brawl, the backlot brawl. Yeah, one of my favorite, one of my favorite wrestling wrestling WrestleMania matches of all time. Oh, one of mine too, because they, but they had taped that prior. That was a cinematic match. It just wasn't as pretty as what we have today. But that was kind of like, I won't say it was the beginning because I don't know who did it first, but it was one of the pioneers of doing that sort of thing, like staging it up and then presenting it and then taking care of it. Cause you realize they wore their clothes for like, they wore those same clothes. Like they had them in a bag and then the day of WrestleMania, they just went to, they played the video and then they went to the audience all done up and finished it out. And, and gold dust walking out in women's lingerie. That still haunts my dreams today. His baby bear stone cold white ass (laughs) and and nobody knew it until later but roddy had a broken hand roddy had a broken hand from all that stuff and they had to take his cast off for uh to be able to finish the fight (laughs) what a huge continuity here right you can't go start off in a backyard brawl with no cast and all of a sudden you show up what happened you stop at the hospital on the way and get it all taped up or what you know what I mean? They probably could have found a way to play it off, but you're right. They had to take it off in order to make it more fluid. But I think you're right about that. I think that was one of the first ones. And WCW did something, I want to say, I think it was 98, 99, where it was Vampiro and Sting in a graveyard. Oh, that, was... That, that was that was another cinematic match that I remember as well. Wasn't as crisp. And mind you, Sting was heavy on drugs at that time, and Vampiro was near the end of his career. But hey. It worked for what they were trying to do with that storyline. But I, I would like to see more cinematic matches. I mean, now they're HD. They're more cleaned up, 4K and what have you. And they can definitely make things a lot more prettier. I just don't want to see it be overkilled. That's what, the one thing I'm worried about, oversaturation. I think done in the right setting, it's going to be like a benefit to the business. Because especially for a lot of these veteran casts, of like they can't really... It, let's go ahead and just say for The Undertaker, he's been around... 20 some odd years he comes back every year he wrestles like once a year but and we've seen him as best and we see him as worst i think in this it allowed us to see undertaker at part of his best because it wasn't that he had to go for 30 minutes it was that we're going to focus on the lore and the story and the character of the undertaker and do some things that you necessarily can't do in a wrestling match to get the story over because of the rich history this guy has. So let's go ahead and play on that because we have almost 30 years of just lure. So let's go ahead and get it all in this match and tell it that way. I think it's, like the the ultimate benefit of doing it cinematically this way was the fact that they could get over all of Undertaker's incarnations through there and they could do all the supernatural and spooky stuff and get it over believably. And I think that's, what's also going to help later on when you get like a bunch, like any other veteran that comes in that would, that um, like I was reading something where they were talking about, yeah, I read the dirt sheets, by the way, I'm, my hand is up. Yes, I read them. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell myself, I don't care. So I was, I was reading something where there was a possibility of Sting versus Undertaker actually happening. I think cinematic would be 
a benefit to get both those guys looking at their best, not focusing so much on the work, but focusing on character story and just overall storytelling. I think if they were to do it that way, because they're both into their twilight of their career, that would be able to maintain integrity for both characters, both men, both individuals, and it would be entertaining for everybody. Oh, I 100% agree with you. Like I said, I'm a Sting fan. Uh, I'm a Triple H fan as well. I was a Triple H fan from when he was terrorizing the Hunter Hearst Dumsley. I've been there through it all. Um, but yeah, I think you're right, especially in the twilight of their career, done cinematically, both would look strong, both would look great, and whoever lost, whoever won, wouldn't matter because they both would go out on a high note. And I mean, that's a dream match that wrestling fans have been dreaming about for years. And cinematically now being an option, a very good option with the success of what they did at WrestleMania and how clean and polished it looked, it definitely could make some heads turn and give those guys that high note and facet. But I do want to circle back to you for a second now. You mentioned before that you were in the music business and you became disenfranchised with it. And then that's when the outlet came for wrestling. What was it about the music business that, I mean, we're a wrestling podcast, but I do like to get real and personal when I can. What was it about the music business that made you kind of turn away from that and, and go back to that, you know, childhood dream of kind of being a wrestler? <clears throat> well, I know for me, I had spent many, many, many years and I'm one thing about myself is I'm one of those kind of people where if there's something I want to do, I'm going to find a way to do it no matter what it takes. And I'm also a dream chaser, and that's just something I've just always done. If there's something I want to do, I'm going to find a way to do it. I don't care what kind of hell I have to go through. I don't care what kind of bull, bull, you know, sorry, what kind of bullshit I got to go through and do. I will find a way to do it. I will find a way to thrive, and I will find a way to make the best of it. Well, I been playing music forever that was what i thought my 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 love was and um i was a drummer in multiple bands i did but the problem i ran into for me was that i start i started off in my early 20s actually going professional and i was playing with guys probably like 15 20 years older than me and I had to grow up a lot and I was partying a lot and we did a lot of stuff. I toured the country with so many bands and I got to experience a lot of things, got to party a lot. That was cool, but it wasn't doing me so hot. But then I eventually got sick and tired of the politics and I got tired of the fact that there were times where I was on point and other people weren't. And there was just a mix in the signal and I got kind of tired of it. Cause it wasn't like I would lose the, I would lose kind of, I guess the best way to explain it was lose the vibe of what I was doing. So then eventually I would leave bands and go do something else. One thing to my testament, even somebody told me recently, it's like, Max, one thing you've always done is you've, you know how to bring a band to another level. Like most of the bands I ever played in, it was, it wasn't, I started it. I got hired on to replace somebody. And then I brought them to another level. And then like, like Clint Eastwood, I just ride off to the sunset and go to my next one. And I did that for a lot of years. And then eventually I got into the cover band field where I was like, I'm tired of, I'm tired of being the starving artist. So I want to go and see if I can't make a paycheck at this and see if I can't make some kind of a career. And I did it. I did it for eight years. I did it for eight or nine years where I was 
working a full-time job and then I was playing drums like two to four or five nights a week on top of it. And I was barely sleeping, but I was making good money. But eventually politics was what it was. And then I just got sick of it and I got very tired of just the lifestyle and it got frustrating. So, and I kept doing it even through college and it, I got to the point where I was, I became a session player, which was kind of brilliant for me because I realized I'm an engineer at heart. I'm actually an engineer in my trade. So you can put me in a position where, Hey, come in, do this. Here's a list of songs. Just show up. And that's what I would do. Cause I'm one of those people. It's crazy. I don't even have to touch my drum kit. Give me a list of songs. I'll learn it. I've got a good ear. I'll come in, nail it, get me paid, get out the door. I'm job squad, 100%, dude. So I did that for a bunch of years, and then I traveled, did some gimmick stuff for a, bu- for a couple of years. And then once I got and found that wrestling was my thing, while I was still in my early stages of wrestling, I, had, um, I was wrestling. I was kind of torn because I was wrestling. I was working a day job, and I was doing band gigs still. So I was like three different people it was kind of weird because you probably had no sleep at all i it tried <laughs> <laughs> i tried hey, that's what that's what red bull and five hour energies are for right you just keep keep chugging along man keep jack, chugging along let's just let's just say me and jack daniels are very good friends <laughs> and oh. um but over time, over the, like a couple of years, I got to the point where as I was wrestling more and I'm still playing, and even though my job would understand, I got to the point where I realized I'm stretching myself too thin because I'm kind of a workaholic. And then I was like, I'm enjoying music less and I'm enjoying wrestling more. And it's not so much that I'm out there. I mean, yeah, I'm getting physical and it allowed me to get my body and my health straight, but I'm meeting people that are more like me than the people I'm meeting in the music. I feel like it was, I was feeling more fulfilled in wrestling because you play enough gigs where people don't give a shit. You start to ask yourself, why am I even doing this? You kind of become a puppet. It's like I walk in, all right, pay me and leave. It's like I'm clocking in and clocking out. What's the fun in that? But when I was in wrestling, I could totally be the me I want to be and meet the people I really enjoy seeing the me that I truly am and become. And then when I get a little crazy and things, they really bite into it and it gets a little nuts, if you know what I mean. And that is just I can sink my teeth into it and just, God, it's just so good. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So talk to me about, because, I mean, everybody knows there's layers to character and, you know, kayfabe, whatever, yada, yada, but character involvement is key. And I look at your character and I look at everything about it and I see touches of a little bit of Hollywood. I see the comic book aspect into it in the promos that you cut. One of my favorite promos that you cut is the one you cut on Damian Wayne when you guys had your feud. You're pissed off about what he was doing. And even though he trained you, you wanted to set him straight. You wanted to make him an example for all the shady shit he was doing. And that was a great promo. And then I look at the character, though, and I look at the message Facebook are setting this up. Mad Max. 
right off the bat, exactly where I'm going. I'm thinking Thunderdome. I'm thinking all kinds. Now, that may be way off kilter, but as I did my research, I noticed there was other layers. But talk to me about the evolution, the character of Mad Max. Was this the way it was right out the gate? Or where did you have to go to get to where you are now? So I guess to be able to talk about Mad Max, I have to start at the beginning. So, as I said, I've always been a music guy. So I became Max in 10th grade. That's something that everybody knows. It's not a story that I really tell but too much, but I was in the marching band in my high school. And... I've always been a metal, I've been a metal kid since I could, you know, whatever. I grew my hair out. I was doing stuff. I have ADD energy, just crazy. So we're out there performing my sophomore year, and I'm smashing this drum during this one part, and I'm swinging my hair, and that's when everybody kind of lost it, and that's when they were like, dude, from now on, you're Maximus because you max everything out. You're like a level 11. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. You skip one through 10. Boom. You're right to 11. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They told me straight up you're 11. So from now on you're max skipped a year. I gave a, I gave a year break and then I went and actually marched a drum for a year and I had something to prove because I physically was having trouble, but they saw that I was out there marching parking lots while the lights were off. All it was was a street light at dark on my own, learning drill, doing all this other stuff, putting myself through the paces, doing shit that all these kids weren't doing. They're like, you are Max. So I embrace that. And I took that into music. And then Max is like an extension of me. I'm, hi, I'm Brian. <laughs> but Max is me all the way the F up here because I take everything just way too far. I'm way too much over-animated, over-emotional, over-violent, whatever. So I took it in the music and I would max out. I could party harder than just about anybody. I could hit drums harder than just about anybody. I can thrash faster than just about anybody. I could step toe-to-toe -to -toe with just about damn anybody, and I wasn't scared to either because I bounced at clubs for about three years too. So as I did this, I gained my reputation, and everybody was like, oh, Max, holy shit. So I take that, and then once I got into wrestling, I was like, well, I've already got a name. And I was like, well, what can I do with Max Morrison? And then I thought about it. I played in a band for two years called Mad Hatter with two D's. So that's where the mad part comes from. And it's not Mad Max's Thunderdome. It's a lot of people think nobody really pays that much attention. It's always the go-to because, you know, the audio cue, but it's mad like a mad scientist or the mad hatter because I'm very unpredictable. I'm all over the place and there's no telling what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> there's no telling what emotion you're going to get. There's no telling what action you're going to get. You're not even, there's no telling what guy you're going to get because for all you know, I could flip a switch and just murder you in your sleep. <laughs> or I could be your best friend, but you've always got to have an eye on me. That's where the madness comes from. That's the Mad Max. 
my backstory of Mad Max is the fact that I've spent all these years in the music scene and I got ostracized by my bandmates for being too out of control. That's how I got into pro wrestling because I found a field more suitable for me so I can get my, I can get my madness out and it was acceptable. (laughs) And the thing about Mad Max is he eventually, because I'm a heavy metal guy, dude, I love all kinds of music, but my heart is in the heavy and I'm always been a headbanger. I go to the concerts, I'm a headbanger. So I've got a heart, I've got a head harder than rock. I use this as my offense and my defense. I am that that's why they call me the headbanger, but because I'm freaking crazy. And a little thanks to Tracy Smothers, who gave me some compliments early on in my career. That is why I'm the wild-eyed headbanger. Mad Max Morrison. Plus, I've got a penchant for horror movies. You're right about the whole Hollywood thing, dude. Horror, me and horror are synonymous, which is something else I'd like to talk about at this point, too, is because if it wasn't for pro wrestling, I wouldn't have a uh, movie career right now because I'm a budding actor in the horror field independently. And uh, Really? Well, I'm a big horror movie fan. I've got a lot of independent horror movies. Is there something... I might have seen. Um, not yet. It's actually still being um, finished. We just did a um, last year. We did this movie through Fuzzy Monkey Productions, Wild Eye Releasings, putting it out. It's called Death Board, through uh, from Brad Twig. He did um, Killer Camp. Have you ever heard of Killer Camp Out or yep. or Mills versus Zombies? Yep. Wrestle Massacre. Yep. That guy. <laughs> That guy's a fucking lunatic. I love that dude, man. Brad is the fucking man. And I did Death Board with him. And then this last year, I, I was shooting this anthology he's doing that's we're trying to get out by Halloween next year called Shriek Show. It's like a carnival anthology, like, you know, Creep Show, but Shriek Show. And um, yeah, so I got to do a couple movies with him. And that's where a lot of my um, inspiration comes from, dude. I surprisingly don't watch a whole lot of wrestling these days i watch a lot of movies and tv and oh yeah i'm I'm going through so much stuff right now i just showed my wife grand torino for the first uh time i i I have the clint eastwood box set and i didn't even realize i was flipping through i was like oh my god grand torino i love this movie she's like what's that sounds stupid i'm like no no it's angry drunk racist clint eastwood it's fucking amazing and it is that's one of his best. He should have won a fucking Oscar for that. He didn't. Get, so wrong. Wrong, man. Get wrong. off my lawn. <laughs> Dude, Don't great you put Twitter. a spoiler Ooh. on that. Don't you put a spoiler on that, Grant Torino. Make it look like the rest of the shitbox cars out there. Oh, hey, so good. Here, I'll show you something funny since you're on camera and the rest of them can't see it. But I'm also a big Elvira fan. Check out my mouse pad. Uh, <laughs> I, my wrist is my wrist has never felt so supported. <laughs> <laughs> so since we're on the subject of horror movies, let's finish this episode off with this has been a great conversation, by the way. And before I ask my last two questions, I want to say thank you so much, man, for being on the show. And you are now officially a member of the Straight Talk family. Anytime you want to come back on the show, I would absolutely love to have you. So I got two more questions. One is kind of fun. And one, we're going to get a little serious. But horror movies, I mean, everyone's debatable about what their favorites are, who the best killer is of all time, who's this, who's that. 
when it comes down to your absolute number one favorite horror movie of all time, what do you got for me? I don't have a number one, like, like at all defining, but I, I realized recently I'm oddly, um, I'm oddly a fan of the number two for some fucking reason, because I love child's play too. I love puppet master too. I love critters too. I love phantasm too. I, so you're a big fan of the sequel. I, for some reason, they just, like some of these ones from the '80s just happen to be like the best ones. So, I'll go on this tangent. I just bought this documentary that's like hard to get. It's called *In Search of Darkness: A Journey Through the Iconic uh, Horror Movies of the '80s*. And going, th- it's like four and a half hours long, but it's beautiful because it just touches on like everything from decade to decade to decade to decade. And that's when I realized. Yeah, I think I like the sequels because Hellraiser. Uh, but I think as far as like my favorites, Chucky. Chucky is my dude. And I'll tell you why. Because he scared the shit out of me, literally. <laughs> literally for so long. Because when I it, it took me until I was like 14 to get over him. So once I finally did, I was like, that's what it's all about. So I was like, dude, you had that kind of influence on my life. Mad respect. You're my favorite. That's terror. <laughs> For me, it's it's Michael Myers, man. I've been a Halloween fanatic since I was a kid. Scared the shit out of me. Yep. Yeah, I see it. I absolutely see it. And my last question for you before we wrap this up. If there's a young fan, male or female out there listening to this and wanting to break into the business, what piece of advice could you pass on to them? I do get asked this a lot and I really do love like passing this kind of info along, but seriously, if you got dreams, try and follow them, dude, because you only have one life and nobody's going to tell you otherwise. The only way you can really be happy is if you yourself find happy. So you're trying to break in the business. Just be smart and just don't be a disrespectful dumbass because nobody's going to take it. Um, find a school, find somebody reputable, um, mouth shut, ears open, go to every camp and seminar you can. And my biggest piece of advice that I even tell the old cats, man, is just that always find a way because wrestling life, everything I've hustled for everything that I have today, dude, like my life, I can attribute to pro wrestling. I'm my house in Maryland, my wife, my my movie career, experiences I have, friends and family I've made along the way, my sweet hoodie with my face on it. Available there's, on ProWrestlingTees.com. There's so much stuff that I can just straight up attribute to pro wrestling. And it was not easy, but determination and um ingenuity goes a long way so just find a way like ask questions if there's somebody out there that knows how to do something and you want to learn how to do it don't be scared to ask them and network 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 like seriously it's a hustle figure out what you want to do and find a way to do it you will come out in the end as long as you're determined this is truly what you want to do. Just 
don't be scared to try, man. The only shot you don't take is the one you don't do. What a great way to end this conversation. I had a blast with you, sir. You're an absolute amazing guy to talk to. And I hope one day I can get my ass out to Maryland so I can see you in action in person. We can snap that picture together. It'll be awesome. Yeah, absolutely oh, I- awesome. Oh, definitely. I appreciate you having me on, man. Hopefully I can make my way up to Canada here one of these days as well. Hell yeah, man. We would love to have you out here. We respect we respect the headbangers. I'm a hip-hop guy myself, but I do have an appreciation for metal. Absolutely do. So you take care. Enjoy the rest of your night, and we will definitely talk very, very soon. All right. Thank you, George. Peace out, man. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week for another episode on Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. Also follow us on Facebook at Straight Talk Wrestling, on Instagram at Straight Talk Wrestling, and on Twitter at underscore Straight Talk. And for all our merchandise, you can search us on ProWrestlingTees.com. Oh.